0: Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation, a new show from the 2020 Network. In this podcast, we're going to take a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people can take as part of this national project. As you can probably tell by my accent, I'm not Indigenous. I grew up in Linköping, Sweden, and now live in Ottawa, on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinabe Nation. Over the course of this season, I'll be talking to indigenous leaders, as well as some non-indigenous folks, about the histories, the challenges and the potential future of Turtle Island. Every episode will end with a few really concrete calls to action. I know I'll be taking them on, and I hope you will too. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto. In our first episode, we're talking big picture, but also getting very personal. With me for this conversation is former Premier of the Northwest Territories, the Honourable Stephen Gaffee, and one of the Commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, Marie Wilson. Both are experts on this topic, and it so happens they are married. So I spoke with them together. A quick note for our listeners. In this episode, we talk about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. When the UN adopted this important declaration in 2007, Canada was one of few countries to vote against it. But since this episode was recorded, Parliament adopted Bill C-15, which obliges the government to ensure that Canadian laws are consistent with the declaration and to prepare a roadmap to implement it. I also have a warning before we begin. We all know these conversations can be incredibly challenging. Many will contain stories of trauma, violence and profound injustice. This conversation specifically includes mention of sexual and physical abuse in residential schools. Let's get started. Edlanete, hello, welcome to the show, Marie and Stephen. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Edlan. Stephen, I'd like to start with you and a little about your background. I know, for example, that you're a residential school survivor. How, through all of that, did you maintain your identity? And with all that you have experienced how have you been able to actually believe in reconciliation
1: i think i was lucky in a way that i was i spent the first 5 years of my life out on the land with my mother and my father and my my uncles and uh, aunts i also stayed close to my grandparents through uh, through my life i uh, i had an opportunity after residential school to spend a few years with my parents and to uh, to relearn the language to spend time hunting and traveling on the land to to get to know the uh, music the drum music the dances the uh, legends and stories and landmarks i i worked at becoming Dene again after being taken out of it for the seven and a half years that I spent in residential school. So the work that I did was a healing type of work to, uh, to bring dignity and uh, ownership of uh, our lifestyle to back to my people and to myself. I think that's, that was part of the key to why I seem to have done uh, well.
0: Marie, most non-Indigenous Canadians grew up isolated from Indigenous communities and go on with their lives without much interaction, if any, with Indigenous people. But throughout your long career as a journalist, you actively sought out opportunities to work with Indigenous people and to advance reconciliation, and not only in Canada. What inspired you to do that?
2: Well, I I lived a very, um, um, I'll, I'll say narrow, in that it was a very geographically small life Um, In my early years, um, I was uh, born in southwestern Ontario um, into a a very modest family, but a very big, rich, extended family, Um, but but, um, I longed for travel and I longed to see and know and experience a bigger world. What I then set out to do in my life, both through my educational choices and through my Career choices uh, was to find and experience that bigger world, but coming from a place in my in my family and in my upbringing of um, of two things, uh, one a, a, a deep sense of the importance of family and two, uh, a a deep sense of the the, um, the teaching of responsibility to others and the importance of um, helping others and sharing what you had to offer. And that's what I took with me into the world. And it sounds like a long and convoluted uh, journey, but I ended up uh, being in France for a year and then being in Africa for two years. And those cross-cultural experiences were so... um, um, both enriching to me, but also instructive to me. They were, were, um, (laughs) it was like an enlarging of spirit. And when I came back to Canada, I just was hungry to know um, how I could experience those things in our own country. But what I also experienced was um, the tensions that are always there between um, the environment and in, in and traditional uh, slash indigenous peoples, um, and the pulls and pressures of economic development I had witnessed that and lived through it in Africa, and I saw it in full bloom here in Canada when the North was facing a number of major um, industrial developments, and I wanted to uh, understand those things, and I wanted to bring uh, what experiences and insights I had to them uh, to help explain them and to, to help. I guess contribute to uh, to the teaching role that I've always seen the media uh, to be involved in. So it's a long convoluted journey uh, that somehow took me to to Europe and to Africa and back to the Canadian North.
0: And then eventually decided to put your name forward for the job as one of the three TRC commissioners. What, what was the specific thinking behind that decision?
2: Well, I I think it's very very important to to note that. Um, um, the previous chapter that I've just described to you uh, landed me at a time when the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline inquiry debate was uh, um, in full bloom in, in northern Canada and it was in that context that I met Stephen and um, and uh, it was in that context that we committed to our, our lives together so I was living and based in the Northwest Territories from then on and have been for most of the past 45 years um, and And realized after, I have to say, a decade and a half of married life, um, what had been the truth in, in my husband's own experiences, that was very, very common, but also to realize what was the truth of our country, which most of us had grown up knowing basically nothing about. But in this part of the country, with the highest per capita number of residential school survivors of anywhere in the country, you could not be a working journalist without running headfirst into the consequences of the school experiences. And so I just felt that I had um, insights, experiences, and some particular skills That I could offer and um, I offered them. Um, It it helped that I could speak English and French and that I knew all parts of Canada well by then Um, and I I also had the perspective uh, as a non-Indigenous Canadian of knowing um, um, of the good people who do exist in in uh, the church and faith communities of the country but also knowing that there was massive ignorance and um, of each other within society that we needed to work towards together. So that's what I had to offer and it's what I put forward. And to my good fortune, I was selected as one of the three commissioners.
0: To our good fortune, I would say. Stephen, six years ago, you initiated Canadians for New Partnership and you were its president and CEO. What is this initiative about and why was there need for it at that time?
1: Canadians for a New Partnership grew out of a time when um, I think Canada was was struggling politically, the indigenous peoples were also struggling internally. The Assembly of First Nations leadership was fractured, and you could see it on national news week in and week out. the um, usual kind of allied action that we used to see in the 80s between the Inuit, the Métis, the First Nations, the Treaty Nations, the Indigenous Nations, was nowhere in sight. In fact, there was, there was a lot of, there was an absence of uh, the Inuit and the Métis working with the uh, Assembly of First Nations, the Assembly of First Nations, Leadership was fractured, and um, there was a lot of internal dissent. And out of that grew, uh, I think, a real rising internal uh, sense of frustration, anger, hopelessness uh, amongst young people. Like, what do we do when our leaders are fighting? What do we do when the government uh, under Prime Minister Harper at that time seemed so callous and, and distant and dishing out a take it or leave it kind of approach to the real issues, bread and butter issues, you know, clean water issues, lack of housing issues that people across the country were suffering from. And a chief started fasting out of, Frustration for just the lack of response to get a few houses for her community, and the indifference was i think it was just staggering and impossibly difficult for for young people to see and out of that grew idle no more idle no more started to happen uh, it wasn't under the leadership of the chiefs or the elected people from anywhere it was just young people taking to the streets talking to each other through social media and here in yellowknife my my children and their their young friends were asking you know where where are our leaders what can we do can you do something and it ended up in my in my door um my children asking me Dad, is there anything you could do? And I didn't know what to do, but I, I started calling people like uh, Ovid Mercury, the former national chief. I talked to uh, Paul Ukulek, a former premier of Nunavut. I talked to Paul Martin, former prime minister, uh, Joe Clark, a former prime minister. And uh, from there it grew. Uh, Phil Fontaine, the uh, former uh, national chief of Assembly of First Nations, as well. And we agreed we should we should meet as as statesmen, as uh, retired leaders, as uh, leaders who still want to try to do something and do it together to give hope to young people. And that was really the. Uh, the beginning of how uh, Canadians for a new partnership uh, started.
0: So you, you both talk about the, the ignorance and indifference that existed. Today, thanks to the work of the TRC and efforts and initiatives that have followed, we have such a wealth of information and resources. So why is there still such a knowledge gap? Why this persistent idea of Canada as a country of explorers and immigrants?
2: Well, uh, one thing I would say is that uh, first of all, I think it's really, really important um, in discussing these matters that we, um, that we not use as synonyms, um, ignorance and indifference. I think one of the things that the TRC revealed through its, its processes uh, it, and we ended up being active for six and a half years is even up until the final year, it didn't matter where we went, there would always be people who came forward to us and said, I had no idea about any of this. I did not know about any of this. And I think it's also really important to note that very, very quickly for those who were in the room, including uh, some of those former prime ministers that Stephen was just talking about, people would say they knew you know, in their head or on paper, I mean, you, you read about things as issues, but when we create a forum, as our commission did, to hear firsthand from people about their lived experiences, it's an extremely different experience. It makes it real. It's not an issue. It's a lived experience. And these are realities. Um, it humanizes everything, and it makes it immediate, and it makes it um, something that belongs to all of us within our, 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 our national Context, So I think um, the shift from ignorance, because we didn't learn about it in school, we didn't grow up in the same neighborhoods, all of those things that we are aware of, um, as are sometimes continuing realities, and including all of the Indigenous people who now live in urban centers, but often very invisibly, um, that 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 allows and that has fed over the decades this kind of shared ignorance. But once people do come to know, my experience and certainly my hope is that as people know, they want to do things differently and they want to do things better. But the catching up the catching up on that knowledge gap and that awareness gap is huge. Um, You know, it's not going to be just school curriculum that does it because the adults who are still in the decision-making and the power positions have already been through school. They miss that loop. That's why our calls to action also direct certain actions at professional associations and at academia at the post-secondary level and at uh, newcomer Canadians. So that you know, it, as quickly as we can, we get everybody caught up to speed on um, this uh, this missing missing it 's not a missing piece of our history it 's a whole missing ribbon of our national history and that it helps us understand why things are the way they are what we as a society have to do with the reason things are the way they are and what is our collective and shared responsibility to go forward differently. And I always stress urgently, urgently, because lives are on the line um, in uh, so many contexts for the the, the, um, the basic life and, uh, and death uh, needs and realities that, uh, that Stephen was talking about earlier.
0: When you look at this scorecard today, Mary, of, of what has been implemented of the ninety-four calls, five years later, are you did you think it would happen faster? And is there something you would have done differently if you had known where we are today?
2: I have to say, and I've said this before. I mean, I was one of the most surprised people of all, probably, when I heard governments immediately say they were going to endorse all ninety-four calls to action, only because. Um, I know that one of the biggest challenges is managing expectations. And some of these things are, they're not quick fixes. They are deeply ingrained systemic fixes. They do require, you know, a major retooling, uh, as it were, of our ways of being and our ways of thinking. Um, and we're dealing with machinery here, namely governments, multiple levels of governments that are notorious for slow motion action. And I'm not saying that in in a scathing way, but it is a reality. I think um, that uh, if you asked if if we would have done anything differently, one of the things that I wish we had done um, is to maintain some kind of a voice Um, for the commissioners or some kind of an ongoing mechanism uh, just to kind of keep the thing alive um, in a more active way. I know that there are tons of people that have taken up uh, the mantle and there are many people by the way that's to be very very clear who were already working on these issues long before there was ever a TRC we just didn't have that same terminology but it's big work and it is it's relentless work and I think we can't afford to get tired of it or to get um, um, sick of it we have to um, keep challenging our to live up to the reputation we, we like to give ourselves as a country um, and to be the, the best that we can be. And we're a long ways from that yet. So it's, it's, it's not a quick fix. I do, though, take great hope um, in knowing that where there have been uh, honest and earnest efforts made, those people who've been directly involved in those efforts um, have been transformed by it. And I hear that over and over and over again. Um, so the issue is just to keep you know you throw that pebble in the water and keep it rippling out. It needs to keep growing, and we need to keep investing in it, so it'll we'll continue to grow
1: mm-hmm. if i could uh, If I could add to that the when when the prime minister uh, stated that he was going to adopt and implement all ninety four calls to action i i I really believe that. And Canadians for a New Partnership was intended to be a national voice, an advocacy group that would try to carry the message of the commissioners, the energy and momentum that came out of the release of the the 94 calls to action and, and bring the government and the country, the churches and all the different sectors. Into action, so that it doesn't become lethargic and come to uh, rest in inertia. And uh, I think I think we we missed the opportunity because you know we should have pushed the government, for instance, to adopt and draft legislation with us to uh, Im- to adopt and implement the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People you know 7 years after the prime minister said he adopted 94 we're still we're still trying to see that the most important call to action uh, yet to be implemented the call for a creation of a national council for reconciliation that should have been uh, actioned and brought into creation and um made operational, you know, within two years of the release of that report. And to this day, it still doesn't exist. It is, it is a, it's a difficult um, thing to see.
0: So as, a, as an activist, Stephen, as well as a politician and then a leader, has it sometimes been difficult to stay positive and engaged in your relations with your non-Indigenous counterparts?
1: Well, you have to believe, you know, that um, when people say things, that they mean it, and they know what they're talking about. And, you know, I've I've always believed as a young activist in my 20s and 30s, that when people say things, I believe them. You know, the church told me many things, and I believed them. The Government said many things i mean you 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 look at the uh, many teachings of the Church and the statements by ministers and governments over the years and you have to believe it you know you can't completely lose faith but it it has been a it has been a long series of broken promises. Uh, Commitments that have not lived up to that have been deferred, and uh, people are too polite to call and say look uh, you 're not living up to your commitments
0: Have you ever wanted to give up
1: well it's not uh, it's not in my nature to give up i've uh, I come from a community when I was born of less than three hundred and Total Dene people at that time were probably about seven thousand people. We we have to fight. I mean, uh I know we're never gonna win the war. And the war is never gonna be over until all of us are wiped out. I don't think we're gonna get wiped out. I think we're gonna survive, but I think we have to we have to pick and choose our battles and we have to fight. That's that's the only freedom we'll ever know, is the freedom to, to fight to be free.
0: Mary, you spent six years as a TRC commissioner, six and a half, um, traveling across Canada, interviewing residential school survivors about their experiences. But you already knew much about this from Stephen. Did you two talk about his experiences in your relationship?
2: Uh, I did not for the longest time. Uh, know much at all about what happened to Stephen. I knew that he had gone to residential school um, but I didn't know uh, any of the specifics of what had happened to him and, um, and therefore in terms of you know any kind of expert insight into the whole thing um, if I relied only on what I knew and learned from Stephen it would have been a very limited window that was very typical, by the way. That, was, that has nothing to do with Stephen being withholding. It has to do with him being typical of the thousands and thousands of survivors that we met and heard from who spent most of their adult lives holding their childhood experiences as secrets and as things somehow that were their fault or that were their shame to either uh, carry or bury um, which they had, some of them, tried to talk about before and no one had believed them, or indeed they'd been further punished for saying such things, including sometimes by their own parents who didn't want to believe that uh, uh, representatives of God, uh, God's representatives would do terrible things to children. So there was a lot of secrecy and shame and, um, and, and silence around all of that. And I think one of the things that the TRC did was we worked very, very hard at trying to create safe space for people to be able to talk about it. As one person said, um, uh, to talk about things that they'd spent their, their whole life um, trying to forget. Um, but the other part that you asked me is, you know, you said I, you used the word interviewing. Um, and I think it's very important to pick up on that word because, indeed, we did not interview people we created space and allowed them to tell us what they felt we needed to know uh, not a q and a not an interview no, not a cross examination but rather safe space for people to share from the depths of their ability to tell us what they thought we needed to know about what had happened, what their life had been like before residential school, what had happened to them at school, what had been the consequences of that experience since that time. And and the one question that I tried always to leave with people too, is for them to tell us what they thought reconciliation would mean to them. Um, And so... That's um, that, that's the power of the forum of what the TRC did, and, and if I were to zero in on one thing in particular that I think there's no going back from that is um, the space that it gave for people to have voice and to have their voices heard um, and to hear themselves speaking, many of them for the first time, to hear them speaking up on behalf of themselves, advocating for themselves, and letting go of all the shame and guilt associated, and I think that's the part, if there's one legacy, there, that's a part that I think is extremely important, that people will not go quietly again, and nor should they, um, nor should our country wish them to. Uh, we need that both by way of keeping ourselves honest as a country, but also so as to stop depriving ourselves as a country of the wealth. Of of knowledge and expertise and accomplishment that it actually resides in Indigenous communities and Indigenous nations, we have a lot to learn, and we need to be far more humble as a country about that.
1: One of the um, one of the things that happens to residential school survivors, at least to me, was I blocked out because uh, some. Terrible things happened to me when I was nine years old at the hands of a nun and at the hands of a a Catholic layman who volunteered to take care of us, and I couldn't handle it mentally, and so um, I just tucked it away, and um, it stayed tucked away. Because I thought it was it was my fault. It was uh, there was something about me that made these terrible things happen, and the nuns to treat me the way she did, and for this pedophile to uh, to abuse me. That's uh, so. When I when I grew up, I never thought about it much. I just said I was a bad kid and I got spanked a lot. And I think uh, Marie, one day when we were having dinner with some uh, justice officials, they asked, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you, Steve? And I said, I don't know. Um, I got spanked with a skipping rope one time. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the nun got so upset with me because I was such a bad kid that she spanked me uh, with a skipping rope. Well, what do you mean, spank? What What do you mean? And I said, us. Sure. How do you get spanked with a skipping rope? And uh, as I as I as they asked me, then I, I I realized I'm not. I wasn't getting spanked. I was getting whipped. I got whipped with a skipping rope. And I think that was the first time I I realized what I was doing. You know, I was taking the blame and covering up for the nun and for the Catholic layman for the the abuse, and I, I was making it like it was my fault. And so I was trying to sugarcoat it, and I didn't talk to Marie or anybody about these things until uh, much later, I think it was 1998, but almost. Twenty years after we've been married, uh, because it it, it was t- so many other kids my I had grown up with were starting to disclose what had happened, and my own uh, traumas were starting to surface. At work, I was a minister of justice, and uh, you know I was dealing with issues and apologizing on behalf of the government to sexually abuse victims in residential school, you know, and I, I was one of them and I, it got to a point where I, I couldn't function anymore and I had to disclose. And so, you know, in 1998 was the first time I, I disclosed, I guess, that, you know, I had been beaten and psychologically abused by a, a nun and, uh, Sexually abused by uh, a supervisor. I'm so sorry to hear about this. It took a long time before uh, I could talk to uh, Maria about it. I couldn't talk to anybody about it. So uh, it was it was like pulling teeth trying to get me to uh, to talk about it
2: he also denied it, because I remember over the years asking him, as the revelations would come out from other students in some of the class actions that were beginning, did anything like that ever happen to you? And he would say, no. And I would say, like, nothing like that ever happened to you? No, nothing like that. Like, it took a long, it's not, it's not a flip of the switch kind of thing. And the reason that I'm saying that is because I think we a time in our country where we cannot afford to say or to tolerate anyone else saying, why don't they just get over it? They've had their TRC. Why don't they just get over it? And it's because for so many people, the the getting to the point of even being able to be truthful with themselves about what has happened to them is not a it's not a flip of the switch kind of thing. It takes time and it takes a sense of safety and a sense of not being alone to be able to start to speak the truth of your own experiences.
1: The the idea of answering a question. Hey Steve, have you were you ever abused? Did you ever have sexual abuse? You know, I always said no. I I, I wasn't. I was spanked a lot. I was uh, punished a lot because I was a bad kid. the The fact of it is, I used to walk away later and think, "What the hell am I talking about?" Of course, I was. It's like you blank it out because because it's ugly and it hurts, and you don't want to think about it. And if you don't, then it, then it's not real. That's kind of as close to how you deal with it as, as you can. And the very first time I disclosed, I was sexually abused when I was nine. In that storage room, I was in counseling in Edmonton. That was a near-death experience because I, w- I was alone in a hotel room. And I I lost complete control of my body, it, I guess it would be like if somebody took their hand and reached down into your, the pit of your stomach and started to pull everything out. That's kind of how it feels when it finally explodes and you just blurt it out. This is what happened. This is who did it. This is what they did. This is where they did it. And it explained why. So many kids are still falling apart; are not able to live a good life, and why some committed suicide. I I I know that now. Yeah, but that's what that's what happened to me the first time I disclosed it.
0: Your experiences, um, and also your your very different backgrounds, if I may say so, must have created some challenges in your relationship. How? Have, how have you been able to sort of overcome or even reconcile with those differences or challenges? You go first,
2: for once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think I always felt like I was different ever since I, I went into residential school and after I came out. because I I was largely displaced, and I felt like a stranger in in the the places I was, and I was quiet and withdrawn. And so, uh, when when I met Marie, and knowing, uh, I started to know about her and her interest. For me, was honest. You know, who who are you? Who are the Dene? What are your issues? why are you uh, struggling for recognition and determined to 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 look for a just way to come into reconciliation with canada and i i think it was uh in defiance of the huge differences i had with the whole world that i thought you know this is nothing um, i like her you know the differences are not that big, and even if they were it should be uh easy to overcome if we just decide that and I think the the differences we had uh made us uh closer together you know it's it's a strange way to to put it that way, but uh, the rest of the world i think for me was even further away, and uh, I was not that interested in in trying to bridge the differences there, but with with Marie, I think it was because I thought i could I could do something, we could do something together.
2: I was just thinking, as Stephen was talking, um, you know, if you were to throw us both in a room and and uh and and there were no lights and we couldn't see each other. Or know anything about each other in terms of where we come from or whatever. Um, I, I think you'd pare down to a core of what do you believe in? You know, what do you stand for? And I think that's, um, it, it, that has nothing to do in, in our case with, with culture or language or skin color for that matter. Or any of those kind of background issues. It has to do with inner things inner things that are older, that come from the generations before us and that we are trying to pass on to the generations in our midst and going forward.
0: That's beautiful. <laughs> when you were a commissioner, did you get asked about your background or question for not being Indigenous?
2: You know, I, I fully expected that to come. I, I was kind of braced for it, to be honest with you, because you don't have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because things are A-OK. You have one because things have gone terribly wrong and something horrific has happened. Um, And because I was the one non-Indigenous commissioner, I kind of went into it thinking, I'm gonna have to put on my hard hat here and be the face of the perpetrator in the eyes of many survivors who who rightly wanna be mad at somebody and who are angry for what has happened to them, uh, and rightly so. But, you know, what I, what I found, and this is part of the extraordinary beauty of the, um, of the whole TRC story, and I would say the whole survivor story, is that um, people treated us as commissioners, and, and I'll, I'll speak for me personally, with um, and, and I saw this in the ways people treated church representatives as well. Uh, I even remember one church person saying, uh, we're treated with far more dignity and forgiveness than we ever deserved. That's what that person said. So I was never I was never um, questioned in that way, uh, which was, I have to say, obviously a huge relief, but it was a very happy surprise. And yet there was a part of me that felt like, why would I be surprised? Because I've never been treated anything but well in any Indigenous context in my reporting years as well. Uh, it just seems such a basic exchange of you bring your your respectful demeanor to a situation and you get treated respectfully in exchange it's so basic so what part of our thinking would consider that we that it would be otherwise um and 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 in fact what i experienced uh was so much appreciation uh people who very often at the end of a hearing or two days of hearings individual people would come up and say we wish you could stay longer you know and you realize that what you've given people is the gift of um holding up a mirror to themselves that because you know i would say things like well i'm not going to be here but you're all still going to be here this space is still going to be here and basically what you've been doing for the last day and a half is listening to each other you know, find ways to continue to do that and to give, you know, loving attention to each other. Um, that's the gift that I tried to bring and offer and very careful listening. And I think it's the thing that that we need to normalize, not out of goodness or out of kindness of the heart, but because it is the most enriching thing in the world, uh, when I say it was an honour to serve as a commissioner, I cannot tell you to what extent it was an enriching experience and how foolish we are as a country if we think this is a must-do as opposed to why would we not want to do something that is so uplifting uh, for all of us.
1: Part of what the message from the traditional leaders and the elders in the 70s when we were dealing with uh, the Government of Canada and the Berger Inquiry was a really simple, powerful message. And what the elders and the uh, traditional leaders said is, we are trying to get recognition and respect for, for ourselves and our rights, our right to our land, our resources, and our right to have our own government to live as we want to live not on how others want us to live. And we're going to do this not by taking away from other people and denying rights to other people, but simply by bringing these things out and trying to get people to recognize and, and make that correction. It was not a racial thing. It, it What the leaders were saying is until people... All across Canada recognize what they don't know, they
0: learn what they need to know, and they try to help correct it. So what are the top three things that you two would like to see non-Indigenous Canadians do, things that anyone can do, simple everyday steps to help advance reconciliation?
1: I would say uh, if Canadians would endorse changing the school curriculum, kindergarten to grade 12 to include the study of the culture and history of Indigenous people of Canada and the uh, history of residential schools in Canada. Immediately, that would be great if they can get their government to pass legislation that will implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and to ensure that all laws in Canada conform to the uh, the standards of the UN declaration, that would be great. And thirdly, I would say, create the National Council for Reconciliation. So we would have an auditor of reconciliation, an independent arm's length office that would on a yearly basis, help us keep track of how well we're doing on the road to reconciliation of the churches of the schools of the professions of the governments of the uh, of the provinces and the municipalities all across the country those would be the three things i would uh, i would like to see
2: so mine would have some overlap. My lists are always long, but <laughs> you've asked for three. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shoehorn it into three. And I'm going to say something about the individual and something about the the community and something about the citizen. And I would say as the individual that at this point in our history, five years after five and a half years after the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there should be no adult in this country that has not at the very, very least read the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And um, and ideally not just to have read them once, but to have them available at hand for ongoing reference as need be. And part of that means that we are investing that basic Uh, individual responsibility to newcomers to Canada as well, Um, including it, for example, as part of the orientation package that's given to all new Canadians, that part of what they are uh, challenged and expected to read is the 94 calls to action so that they are quickly brought to speed on this big national work, which uh, which our national government has said we are all committed to as the people of Canada. At the community level, and I say community broadly, whether it's the community of family or the community of your faith community or the community of your professional association or the community of your athletic organization, um, talk about this issue uh, not as an, an encumbrance but as an opportunity and an awakening uh, whether that's asking your children about what they're learning in school and some families that may be learning from your children because the children may have more access to materials than than the adults do, depending what work or prof- profession they're in. So to, for it to become a conversation that people have um, as an ongoing piece of um, of knowing and digging deeper into the question of who we are as a country. And the third level is really where I would cross over with Stephen, and that's um, as citizens. So I'm speaking now of an adult population. We need to be um, informed and and active citizens and not just at election time. And I think we should all know who our, our members of parliament or legislatures are, and we should be in touch with them and we should be asking them What are you doing specifically to advance the implementation of the calls to action that apply to you? Because some apply to the federal government, some apply to provincial or territorial governments, some apply to municipal governments. And we need to be asking people and holding them to account because what's what's happened historically is people have allowed themselves to say, well, I don't have any Indigenous constituents, so I don't actually have to know anything about all this Indigenous stuff. And that's what Stephen's talking about when he says, oh no, here we go again, back to square one with another person who claims to know nothing about any of this. And we have to have zero tolerance for that and have an expectation that this is part of the well-informed background that anybody seeking public office would have and to know what their responsibility are on this file, because it's not an Indigenous file, it's a Canadian file and it belongs to all of us. That's what reconciliation is about.
0: What do you think about the land acknowledgement, Stephen? Do you, do you appreciate it, or do you feel like it's the risk of it being tokenized is worse when people don't know what they're saying, they're just doing it to check the box? I think it makes you think,
1: and it makes you know, and, that's, and that, that is a good thing you know as in, as indigenous people we're not always aware on whose land we are so um, you you try to keep track and as a denay i've i've gone all over uh, den and day all the traditional territory of the denay i've hunted on it i've traveled on it by a snow machine by boat walking and I try every everywhere I go to acknowledge. I go to the chief and I say, "I'm so and so, and I'm going to go hunting on your territory." And uh, so that's the, that's the courtesy. That's that's what we do up here. You know, when we go from community to community, we let the chiefs know. We let them know, "Hey, I'm here. I'm visiting. I'm going to be here for so and so." So it's, it's it's part of our culture, and, and what you're doing is, is, is keeping it alive that way. So I think it's a very good thing.
2: I think where it falls short, you know, is that, um, first of all, people are so ill-equipped at it, but also it has become a lay thing. I think uh, at senior levels of government, And at levels of diplomacy, of the diplomatic world, people understand the importance of diplomacy, and that's how we deal with the world around us, outside of Canada. Inside Canada, we've skipped that step for all these decades and centuries, and now we're trying to learn it, and we're learning it in a very a slapstick kind of a way almost and in a haphazard way. And, it's the, and it is the challenge of reconciliation in every example, which is that it is inconsistent across the country. And and people are kind of guessing at it or they're making a stab at it or they're doing it in a tokenistic way as opposed to in a truly diplomatic way. Uh, we know that when our prime minister or our territorial provincial leaders travel internationally, they don't take a stab at diplomacy. They know that everything hangs on diplomacy and they know that they can't skip those steps Um, and they don't wing it rather than saying, what do your protocols expect of me and how can I learn to do that properly? Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other thing and it's kind of not mine to say, but that's my observation.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good one. All right. All right. And thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. That was a very, very interesting conversation, and I'm very grateful that you shared so much. Masichu, thank you. Okay, thank you. I have taken away lots from this conversation. First, I have been thinking more about what it means to be an active citizen holding our governments to account on the promises they make around reconciliation, and not just reading, but really understanding the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The revision of the citizenship oath from June this year to include indigenous peoples is a great step forward. But I love the idea of including the calls to action in orientation packages for newcomers And why not in the study guide for the citizenship test? I know that would have improved my own experience as a newcomer. I also heard two major things that would have a huge impact. The first, ensuring all kindergarten to grade 12 school curriculum include the study of the culture and history of the indigenous peoples on this land and of residential schools. And second, finally creating a National Council for Reconciliation that tracks whether or not we're meeting our commitments. We need to be more active citizens in calling for these changes. I'll repeat Marie's words from earlier in the discussion. We have to keep challenging ourselves to live up to the reputation we like to give ourselves as a country. Thank you once again to the Honorable Stephen Gaffee and to Marie Wilson. And thank you, the listeners, for joining us for this first episode of Everyday Reconciliation. We've got more great conversations coming, so stay tuned to the 2020 Network feed. New episodes will air every second Thursday. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Erin Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jarrah. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Leveilly and the music was produced by Marius Miller.